Hello, everybody, and welcome to Proselytize or Apostatize, the show where we get Christians, atheists, and everything in between to discuss theology and different worldviews. Today, I'm your co-host, Caleb Jackson, and with me is my other co-host, James. James, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, man. It's um, good to be back. I think the last time I was on the show, I was debating you, Caleb, so it's not nice to be back with you. And, <laughs> you were. Uh, you... Yeah, it's nice to have Swan and Aaron on the show today debating the relationship between <clears throat> God and morality. Welcome, Aaron and Swan. So, Aaron and Swan, why don't you just spend a minute introducing yourselves and tell us a little bit about your position today. Aaron, I'll let you go first. So my name is Erin Burnett. I'm a theology master's student from Northern Ireland in the UK. My position is that you can be good without God. Even though I am a Christian, albeit of a very liberal kind, I think in our globalised world where an awful lot of people are either not Christian or completely non-religious, we need to come up with some sort of alternative form of morality that will work for everyone, if that's even possible. So the gist of my position is religion can be useful, but it's not necessary in order to be a good person. All right, thank you, Aaron and Swan. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me on the show. So my name is Swan Sona. I'm a philosophy student at Kansas State University. Uh, I really enjoy studying, you know, things like the metaphysics of God and ethics and political and social philosophy. And recently I've been dabbling my toes in, um, Theology and Scripture, uh, and I have a podcast, YouTube channel, Facebook page called Intellectual Conservatism, where I discuss a lot of these issues. So, yeah, thank you for having me on, and hi, Aaron, it's good to finally talk to you. All right, guys, great. So I think we decided in advance that we're going to try to do 10-minute openings, and then we're just going to try to have an open dialogue, and maybe James and I will help guide some of the questions, depending on how it goes. But um, Swan, are you okay with going first since you're the affirmative? You're arguing that God is necessary for morality, and Aaron is the opposed opposition. So we'll have the affirmative go first. You have around ten minutes or so. Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, then I'll I'll time myself if that's okay. So ten minutes. That's, and yeah, if you want to keep track of me, that's fine too. Yeah, it's not strict. It can. There's a little bit of leeway on the ten minutes, but yeah, whenever right. you're ready. All right. Well, yeah, I want to begin by just thanking um, apostatize or proselytize for inviting me on to talk again about a very important subject probably one of my favorite subjects actually to study and think about, which is the relationship between God and morality. And this is the first time I've ever really had a discussion with a Christian agnostic about this particular subject. So, you know, I, I, I'm not really interested in kind of coming here and giving, a, you know, proofs and, you know, uh, having a very dry philosophical debate. Because I think um, Aaron and I might agree on actually a lot of things in terms of the relationship between God and morality and morality in the public sphere. Uh, these are very useful and valuable questions. So I just want to begin by opening um, with that kind of acknowledgement of what my goals are. So I want to begin by just talking about then the importance of morality itself. So all of us acknowledge, or all of us have recognized that there's something important about when someone claims they have a natural right to something, or when they have rights that transcend the government, the institutions of law, when they have rights that stand against those who are in power. So for instance, Take a, when you have individuals who are minorities in a society, individuals who don't have the power or are structurally disadvantaged, 
they can appeal to something deeper, more ancient and fundamental than the state itself. They can appeal to the moral law itself. And that's why it matters, I think, that when we discuss morality, we, we acknowledge that institutions do play a role in shaping the moral consciousness of the society, but also that that consciousness, that political sphere, has to be shaped by something deeper and more fundamental in order to protect something deeper, which is our natural rights, those things that are deeper than political society itself. This leads me then to the second observation, which is that there's a problem, I think, when we try to understand morality in terms of purely evolutionary or psychological factors. There's a tendency sometimes if one rejects a religious explanation for the grounding of morality to appeal to something like our common, maybe uh, aversion towards pain, or even perhaps um, uh, you know, other various evolutionary dynamics on how groups are formed, on how structures and hierarchies are made, and so on and so forth. Now, I think the problem with this is that what we understand from, for instance, you know, the economic sciences or cognitive science, that human beings pursue rational self-interest. But then there's a problem. Because as in, for instance, as the philosopher David Berlinski explains, suppose that there's this button in front of you that you can press. And this button is such that if you were to press it, then you know one person in China, let's say a villager dies. In but then you to refrain from pressing that button. Now, the difficulty here is that if human beings are motivated by only rational self-interest, then why not press the button? Only one life is lost, and this life is one that you'll never encounter. Perhaps as a mere Chinese peasant, this life didn't really matter much to the grand scheme of the economic or social apparatus of that society. But also, there's a problem when we try to base human equality on, let's say, a common feature like consciousness. So Jeff McMahon uh, wrote a paper not too long ago titled I believe it's something like, um, uh, you know, uh, something about the, the, the origins or roots of the liberal egalitarian human view uh, of the of value of the human person, right? So the liberal egalitarian view says that human beings are superior to animals, they get moral equals to one another. And McMahon says, well, if you say that the reason why human beings are different is because we have consciousness, well, what about persons that are disabled to some extent? Or if we say that human beings have a different degree of consciousness that makes us unique, then wouldn't it then be the case that those who are more fully developed would have more rights or more importance, right? So then the disabled would seem to not have as much of a say in our society. So McMahon actually believes that our liberal egalitarian views on human equality actually rest on distressingly insecure foundations. If we are simply basing morality on some evolutionary or psychological explanation, then we see that we get the explanation for our moral sentiments, as Adam Smith would say, but we don't get the synthesis about how we ought to structure those sentiments, what passions or aversions towards pain, what kinds of pain, what kinds of harms are morally significant. We require philosophy to ultimately help us to understand the total structure of um, our moral system. So that's why I want to emphasize in my third point that there seems to be an inevitability of philosophy. So it doesn't matter, right, um, if we want to say that, okay, let's think about what socially uh, is most advantageous for the group, or what should we believe. Rather, we recognize that at some point we're going to have to get down to the philosophical bedrock of what we believe. Because it really does matter if there is such a thing as an intention foresight distinction. If there really is a significant causal distinction between killing and letting die. 
right? So philosophy inevitably has to come into the question in order for us to understand um, the very subject that we are talking about. Because, for instance, McMahon says, um, after saying that, you know, our views on human equality are distressingly insecure, he says, but maybe we should just believe it because we think it's a good thing to believe. But that doesn't really compel us. And at any moment, if someone points out that the emperor has no clothes, then that system falls apart. So I want to offer then kind of my approach to how I view morality. So I view morality as the science of how to fulfill one's nature. And the reason why I'm a theist, based on this kind of moral backdrop, is because I think that morality actually presupposes five important principles that each collectively together point to the existence of God. So for instance, there's such a thing as the convertibility principle, where being and goodness are interchangeable. This is to say that the fulfillment of something is what we mean by goodness. There's the fact that then we need to talk about the essence of something. So the thesis of real essentialism. And then finally, we recognize that you know cause and effects aren't arbitrary, but causes are intrinsically ordered or tending towards their effects. So to use an example from Edward Fazer or even David Otterberg, they use the example of suppose that you see a triangle you know, etched into maybe a, a car or you know, on a bus or on a tree. And then you say, that's a good triangle. What you're saying is this particular instantiation of triangle is tending towards or aiming towards the fullness of being of what a triangle is supposed to be. So then we see the essence of the triangle is invoked in order to be kind of the proper reference for what a particular triangle is supposed to be. We see that the more fully that thing is as it's supposed to be, it has more goodness. And then we also see that we can tell that there's intentionality behind the act of drawing the triangle, that the person who was drawing the triangle was really intending or aiming towards instantiating a triangle. And of course, we can go into other examples, such as from the great philosopher Philippa Foote, on how really morality depends upon an idea of harm. And you can't have an idea of harm without proper function in the background. Or even uh, someone like the, the late philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson, she acknowledges in her account of morality, even though she's not a natural law theorist, she's a Kantian or deontologist, she says, yeah, we need to have some talk of design function in order to just get our foot off onto the uh, project of morality. Then we can talk about the principle of sufficient reason, which says that there's a sufficient explanation for why some contingent reality obtains. This is to say why some reality that otherwise need not have obtained does in fact obtain in the real world. Because the PSR helps us look at human action and see that it's reason-driven. There is a sufficient explanation or reason for why I perform some action. And my actions are aiming towards the good. Even if I fail to attain the good, nonetheless, I can understand it as a failure because it was tending towards some object. And we can discern these objects in our understanding of morality. And then finally, we can talk about the principle of proportionate causality, which simply completes our theory of explanation or causation. Because whenever something, a cause produces some effect, whatever perfections or realities are in the effect, they have to somehow pre-exist in the cause. So it's not the case that something causes another thing, it just came out ex nihilo, right? There was something from which the effect was drawing from in the cause. Now, this doesn't mean that the effect effect exists exactly as it does in the real world, as it does in the cause, right? There's, there are different distinctions we can have, but the point here is that being produces being, and that whenever we see a cause produce an effect, it's not non-being producing being, 
there's a continuation of reality there. Now, of course, I don't have enough time to explain how exactly this creates a moral system, but I think the gist is explained. And I also think that once you look at certain arguments like the principle of sufficient reason and how they can point to the existence of God from arguments like contingency or Press and Kuhn's argument on the PSR leading to a simple unbounded supreme being, and we can get into other arguments such as the principle of proportionate causality dealing with the gap problem. How do you get from the first cause to a personal agent, so to speak? But the point I want to make then is that if morality is the science of how to fulfill one nature, and these natural laws or principles are available to all human beings, then we can engage in a moral society with these natural laws in mind, with this public knowledge. But I think we have to acknowledge, and there goes my timer, that eventually the ultimate good we are aiming for is God himself, the one who created the moral law, the one who is the fulfillment of our nature. And hence, to remove God from the moral sphere is to remove, in some sense, our own fulfillment and happiness. And that's where I'll leave it. Okay, thank you so much, Swan. As a side note, I know David can hear it. Did any of you all, uh, you all hear a clicking noise? I wasn't sure if that was from Swan's microphone or if it's just... Uh, I can hear like a rattling sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was talking about. Does your phone or does your timer, Swan, have... If it's really close to your mic, I don't know if it's doing that or if it was your timer or something, but I don't hear it anymore, so... Oh, it's probably, it's probably uh, my uh, ring. Yeah, my ring is kind of oh. like uh, has two pieces on it. So let me let me take it off then maybe. Oh, okay. That's I didn't think yeah. of that. Oh, I, yeah, I just heard it when you put it down. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Okay. okay, cool. Thank you. All right, Aaron, you get about 10 minutes as well. Start when you're ready. Okay, well, first of all, I like Swan said, I think we're going to agree with a lot of things, so maybe this isn't going to be a fun debate because we're not going to be at each other's throats. But <laughs> So as, as I said in my introduction, I would consider myself to be an agnostic Christian and I am well aware of how contradictory that seems. So I go to church, I have a theology degree, I try my best to follow the way of Christ, but at the end of the day, if I am brutally honest with myself, I simply can never know for sure if any of the supernatural elements of the faith are true or not. So therefore, I will look at the issue of morality from the perspective of a very liberal Christian. And also, I feel like I should give an advance warning because I use some specific examples and if kids are watching, it involves adult examples. In my conversation partner is extremely intelligent. He uses very philosophical arguments and I think the difference between our perspectives is that I'm a big fan of practical theology and just practical ethics in general and to use the fancy terminology I would prefer a consequentialist form of morality rather than say a natural law or deontological form. So to be blunt, I really don't care where morality originates from. I care much more about how our actions impact upon other people in the here and now. So my view on morality is partially inspired by this book called Godless Morality, which was written by Richard Holloway, and he was the Bishop of Edinburgh at the time, so a very senior churchman. But he argued that in our modern world, we need to discover and promote a genuinely 
ecumenical ethic that will appeal to both religious and non-religious people. And this is particularly the case in the UK where he was writing, because we are now approaching 50% of the population being non-religious. So the church simply doesn't have the moral monopoly that it once had. Holloway is a fan of John Stuart Mill, whose harm principle is arguably the best and most simple way to do ethics. He states that we should be free to do whatever we want as long as it does not cause harm. Of course, then we have to agree on what exactly harm is. And I would say that harm is simply anything that interferes with human or animal flourishing. And I'm sure Swan would probably agree with me on this, although he would, of course, argue that human flourishing comes from following God's intentions through natural law. Whereas I think it's probably more likely that it's just the result of an evolutionary process. We have evolved to be a deeply empathetic species, and it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that all humans can flourish. It's for the overall good of the species. It would also explain why morality continues to develop over time, why we now consider certain things to be immoral, even though even one generation before it was perfectly fine. And of course, it is possible that God was the one who was behind all this evolution. And I mean, I'm open to that possibility. If you wanted to bring God into it, I suppose this form of morality would fit with the idea of progressive revelation, that God is gradually revealing his truth over time in a way that is appropriate to the context. But you do not have to be a theist in order to apply the harm principle. And that's what's so great about it. It really is universal. Now, Swan brought up a very good point about disability rights, and that is definitely a critique of the evolutionary view. And to that point, I would say the highest evolved species, so apes and humans, show signs of empathy, of looking after the injured instead of just abandoning them as lower forms of animals do. So I think even just using our basic empathy, we can still care for those who are perhaps not quite as rational. Now, we should probably look at the Bible in particular if we're talking about ethics and God and particularly Christianity. I don't think that biblically based ethics are sufficient for the modern world. It's certainly a good starting point, but it's not the be all and end all. And of course, it's interesting that my opponent is a Catholic. This would perhaps be more contentious if I was debating, say, a sola scripture or a Protestant. <laughs> now, Deuteronomy 22 is one of the many examples why so-called biblical morality cannot come from an omnipotent deity. Rather, it comes from humans who are trying to discern the will of God and not quite getting there. So I apologise in advance for the, the graphicness of this example, but it's in the Bible. So Deuteronomy 22 says that a woman can be stoned for not being a virgin on her wedding night. Okay. But in order to prove that she is a virgin, she must be able to produce sheets stained with blood from the wedding night. We now understand that this so-called virginity test is 
biologically inaccurate. Not all women bleed for the first time. Some don't even have a hymen. Therefore, this law would allow for perfectly innocent women to be stoned to death. And that does not sound like the work of a loving God to me. And I know that many would respond to this with, but that's the Old Testament, things are different now. And yes, that's true. But the point is, biologically inaccurate laws such as these cannot come from an omnipotent God. They are cre clearly the creation of flawed humans influenced by their time and culture. This is why we need to detangle the concept of morality from religion. Now, where does Jesus fit into all this? As a liberal Christian, I still believe that the way of Jesus is a pretty good way for someone to live their life. In fact, there are even Christian atheists out there who have wholeheartedly rejected the doctrines of Christianity while still following the ethical teachings of Jesus. So, for example, secular humanist Julian Beghini recently published a book about how the teachings of Jesus can transcend religious divides. He writes that at the heart of Jesus' teaching is the need to have goodwill to all. It's not about a long list of do's and don'ts. It is a challenge to respond with love to the specific needs of every individual situation. He is impressed by Jesus' care for the poor, outcasts, the powerless, his emphasis on forgiveness, compassion, humility. All of these things are virtues that can be embraced by Christians and atheists alike. So to conclude, I shall briefly recap my three core arguments. One, you do not need God to be a moral person. Following religious teaching can certainly help, but it's not necessary. Two, evolutionary biology can account for our developing sense of right and wrong. And three, the harm principle is a simple way to evaluate morality, and it's a principle that everyone can use. And that is my argument. All right, thank you guys. James, do you want to say something? I know you haven't. Uh, start start them off on their discussion. Um, yeah, sure. I think I just wanted to, to comment on what you said, Aaron. We that you would tend to agree a lot with Swan's position. Um, however, I, I see your positions as as being very different. Um, you seem to ground your position in something that is practical and real and tangible. And Swan, you appeal to philosophy and something that is uh, seems to be um, abstract. Um, I wanted to just follow up on, on where you left off, Swan, because you were fairly limited in time. I think you did well pointing out um, the problems within um, contemporary moral debate or the problems that we face in the, this particular moral debate and have faced through through the centuries. But um, you said, I, I can't exactly describe, um, oh, you, that you, you said, I can't exactly describe how this creates a moral system. Um, I think it would be helpful for 
the debate and for our viewers for you to describe your moral system based on your position. So I'll, I'll, I will leave that there with you. Um, what about you, Caleb? Did you have any comments on or observations uh, you'd like to bring to light? I, yeah, but I'll let Swan address what you said first. I'll give him a chance. So I think we, what we can do is we can start, we can ask them questions from their opening statements to the other person to clarify, and then just kind of see where that goes. So I'll let Swan go ahead and respond to what James asked about Aaron's comment earlier. You're, you're muted, by the way. I think David muted you because you're clicking down. Okay, am I back? Yep. Okay, so we get a system of morality from these five principles because, for instance, when we observe natural laws in operation in the natural world, we see that nature has certain tendencies and that these tendencies can also lead to predictable outcomes. So, for instance, I observe that um, if I uh, drop, right, maybe some kind of object, it falls at a certain velocity, and therefore I can predict in the future what kinds of uh, things will happen if I drop similarly uh, weighted objects or with the same kind of mass, right? So then in the same sense, then, the natural law theorist is going to look at nature and study the nature of particular organisms or creatures and see what do they tend towards in order to sustain themselves, in order to pursue the good, right? So for instance, we see that for a human being, um, our biological tendency, one of them, the most fundamental is to stay alive, right? So our bodies will react in certain ways in order to stay alive. Uh, we'll see that for instance, to deprive someone of let's say a properly functioning organ, even, and there's no reason let's say to deprive them of it, like their hand, to cut their hand off, right? Uh, there's something there that uh, violates what ought to be there, what is part of the nature of that human person, right? So then what happens is then we begin to study, okay, what fulfills human nature? And we develop this list of things that are called basic goods. So if you want to read more about this, you can look at the work of uh, David Otterberg in his paper, I believe it's uh, The Structure and Content of the Good, in which we explore what explains human action. Why do human beings pursue certain things, right? So for instance, um, I'm pursuing right now the good of knowledge by interacting with everyone. I'm trying to pursue the truth. And that's what explains my actions of providing arguments, of assessing what Aaron's saying, of writing down my notes. Um, I'm pursuing the good of friendship, right? Because I don't want to yell at Aaron. I don't want to make anyone feel bad, right? So there's, a, there's an intrinsic goodness or value of friendship, and that motivates me. That, in some sense, metaphysically explains why I'm drawn towards certain actions. And then virtue, this would be understood as those things that predispose us towards or dispose us towards the goods in question. So there's a lot that's going on there, but I just want to say that if human action is reason-driven, then we need to ask ourselves, why did we think that the action was worth performing? Why was the action reasonable to us such that it was worth enacting in the first place? And when we use this language of like, what makes it worth doing, we're really just talking about the good that we're pursuing in the process. So then in the process, you can create different principles. You can analyze, well, if human beings all have the same nature, how can you discriminate between them, right? Um, if, if the nature is what explains our properties and, uh, you know, uh, and, and the nature is shared by all the same members, then how could you legitimately discriminate between them, right? So, for instance, maybe one person is more um, eloquent or more intelligent than the other, maybe a more productive member of society in some economic sense. Then you could say, well, but if we're all human beings, 
And what makes us valuable is the fact that as the convertibility uh, as the convertibility principle states that being and goodness are convertible. Then the fact that that person exists is good. There's a value in that human life intrinsically. And if we have the same nature and the nature is what grounds morality, then we're under the same moral law. We're under the same principles. You can't just discriminate on the basis of some outcome when, for instance, our the natural opposition is not necessarily concerned with outcomes. It, it's concerned with flourishing, certainly, but it's also concerned with the integrity of human action, with the integrity of virtue, and so on and so forth. So that's just a very kind of general explanation of how you get a moral system from these five principles. Okay, thank you so much for that, Swan. So uh, I'm going to give Aaron a chance to respond to that in just a second. Um, but I would like to also ask a, a question or clarify on her position. Um, so I think she talked about you talked about flourishing a lot, right, Aaron, and the harm principle and, and stuff like that. Uh, but I always imagine, and I don't have kids yet, but you know, little kids like to ask uh, the question "why" to a lot of things, right? So I can I can imagine someone asking, "Well, why is harm bad?" And I think eventually it seems that when you get to it, it's just well, that's what we ultimately want, right? So. My question to you, Aaron, is that do you think morality is ultimately emotivism? Is that if, if we, we act as if it's true because we want it to be the truth, we want it to be the case that human life has value and that pain is bad, and so we live as if that is. Um, so if you'd like to address that, if, if you understood what I was saying. Yes, I suppose it depends how nihilistic you want to be. Um, I suppose those on like the real atheist end of the spectrum would say there is no why, it just is. But I would perhaps say say that question, why is harm bad? Well, we just know experientially that it is. The vast, vast, vast majority of people, unless you have some sort of severe neurological disorder, feel pain and don't like it. It really is that simple. Sorry, I'm not I don't have quite as Quite as eloquent answers as Swan does, but pain is bad. We just instinctively know pain is bad, and therefore we try and avoid it. Okay, yeah, thank you for that. Um, all right, uh, before we open up the conversation, I'll just get a couple more clarifications. Swan, I so Aaron brought up in her um, opening statement about um, she didn't use it with the word atrocities, but like outdated biological arguments. Um, she talked about the stoning before um, marriage because of a, you know, premarital sex or whatever. And I'm sure that we could all point to accounts we've heard where, you know, God orders people to get slain and what at least appears to be a genocide. So I guess my question to you, Swan, is the Bible outdated in certain elements regarding morality? And um, if you if it's true, as you say, that humans have intrinsic value, um, does God not himself violate that value whenever he cause he allows someone to get a disease or get murdered and so forth? So um, I'll let you address that. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I think, worthwhile things that Aaron pointed out. And the thing is, like, um, it depends on, you know, uh, how deeply I want to go into Christianity, right? Because I could just appeal to a transcendent good creator. And that's all that I really need to say, perhaps, right? Human beings should believe in the transcendent. We should believe that the good is everlasting and real, and that um, you know the, the the creator of the world, who created the moral law, who gave us our natures, who is you know the fount of existence and the supreme reality. That reality we see 
created us with certain ends, wants us to pursue the good. And then we see that if this being is the fullness of existence and reality, then by the convertibility principle, this being would be the highest good, right? Because it would be the source of everything else. It would be the structure of what makes morality intelligible, ultimately speaking. So then it would be the highest intellectual good. This creature, would, or this uh, creator would be the highest intellectual good, the greatest beauty that we can ever imagine. It explains everything else in the world. So I could just appeal to that kind of transcendent creator and just say, yeah, okay, you know, the Bible, biblical example, sure, but we need to believe in the transcendent. Maybe that's what I could say. And even, you know, certain Christian atheists like Douglas Murray or even Don Cupid uh, will talk about how, you know, it's a real tragedy that we've lost a sense of the transcendent and something that is beyond us, so to speak. You know, and I think uh, even even individuals like the late philosopher Sir Roger Scruton have talked about how we need the face of God still in some way or another. We need to still see another human being as in some sense carrying the divine in them, as carrying something infinite and beautiful. And that this can't just be some nice piece of poetry that we say to one another, right? There has to be something real about it, which is why, you know, it goes back to my first point about why it's significant that, you know, natural rights aren't just fictions, but they are real and stand against the institutions of power, stand against those who are structurally advantaged, so to speak. So uh, to get to the biblical example then, I mean, it depends on how you approach the, the, the hermeneutics, and I'm sure Aaron is familiar with how maybe uh, some people have interpreted these particular passages. So I mean, if you take a more fundamentalist perspective and you say God literally wrote these things, then I'm sure like um, specifically the thought, which is the 630 laws of the Old Testament, um, you'll probably run into problems, right? Trying to make sense of, you know, there's a clear biological problem here or error. So I think uh, the, the approach that I would take is, Kind of like a critical realist one so i'd say okay i understand that there is some cult and some of the some uh, of the you know the science and the understanding of the times that are appearing in the text but even historically speaking when we look at how the torah was actually applied the rabbis and the scribes and the oral torah were how they really manifested and implemented the law so of course there were times where they did stone people because maybe they betrayed israel or they committed treason uh, you know, and so then that gets down to what you think about the death penalty, right? But it was not just a simple petty act that got them killed uh, or a biological error, right? Um, so then, yeah, there, there, there have to be some nuance there in our historical interpretation. But also, like, um, you know, there's, you know, as classical theists, as someone from a Thomistic background or kind of from a more ancient school of philosophy, there, there's this belief that God is not a moral agent like everybody else. God is in some sense above the moral law, because if morality is predicated on our nature and the science we're fulfilling our nature, then God wouldn't technically be bound by human law since he's not a human being, right? So God could technically do things that other beings could not be allowed to do. And I believe that um, Aaron is, I'm not, I don't want to make assumptions, but Aaron might be um, a vegan or a vegetarian, right? So you believe in the rights of even animals or their, their potential equality with humans, whereas I would just say ontologically, there's a radical difference between us. And then I just apply the same logic to God and say ontologically, because God is a higher being than us, you know, the moral law would be kind of different. The moral law, so to speak, would be kind of different for him. All right. Uh, if James is okay with it, I think we can go ahead and go to a um, just a conversation between the two. So at this point, we won't be guiding as much unless we feel it's needed. So we'll just kind of have them talk back and forth. Um, to start off the conversation. I was going to bring up a point that Aaron brought up earlier um, that I don't think Swan has yet to address, which is the idea that 
she mentions how our morality develops over time and how things we thought were, you know, take slavery or a hundred other examples that we thought were moral 150, 200 years ago. Now we think are immoral. So um, we can start off the conversation on this and kind of see where it goes. But um, so I guess for the theists, one, why should we believe objective morality or that virtue exists at all um, instead of it just being something that we kind of make up over time and that evolves? So. You all can both unmute yourselves and, and have at it, and we'll see where it goes. And as a side note, Swan, there was so, you don't have the rattling now, but there was one earlier. So I don't know if it's your mic or, or what it is, but it, it comes and goes. So I don't was know why it, why it happened. Was it in my, my most recent response, the rattling sound, or was it not there? No, it was there. Yeah, well, I, I, maybe I should put the microphone further away from me or something. I don't know. Let's see what that, yeah. let's see what that does. Okay. All right. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll address the two points and then I'll let Erin kind of dive in with whatever question she has. So, I'm, you know, oh, OK, it wasn't in my last response. It's what David Russell said. So, OK, I'll, I'll put the microphone back close to me. OK, we'll see. <laughs> okay yeah, I, I took off my necklace. I took off my jewelry. I took out, I moved my phone. So I hope that fixes everything. Um, yeah, let's see here. There we go. Uh, OK, so, you know, I mean, Philosophers like William Lane Craig have explained that even the concept of a development or progress in morality presupposes that we are tending towards some better state, right? So that means that we're making progress, right? So we're moving up to some kind of ideal that we are finally attaining. And I think that then you, are, you inherently have a teleological underpinning to that very idea. You already have an idea of like there's a, there's a reality to morality that it's not just a uh, you know, social ideal, right? But there's something uh, deeper there. Although I think Aaron might appeal, or you know, one could appeal to them like evolutionary explanations for morality, such as our our common empathy. And in my opening statement, in my second point, I did talk about how first, you know, evolution also tells us that human beings are governed by a rational self-interest, which is basically what underpins all of you know economics. And that there's a danger sometimes where economics becomes our morality. Right, so that you know the least productive members of society aren't viewed as valuable, or we're just seeking getting the best outcomes at the expense of individual rights, or even what the minorities in the society have to say. And then even talk about too, like how human equality, on an evolutionary perspective, does face some difficulties, especially especially if you know, uh, you know, Peter Singer and Jeff McMahon are probably I would say the, the practical ethicists. You know, Singer literally wrote the book Practical Ethics. Where he argues that um, you know infants, a uh, few months after they're born, are don't have many moral value, right? Uh, because they aren't self-aware, and self-awareness doesn't occur until you know I think about like eight months or so after a child is born. So during that time, you know they're free game, basically so to speak. Uh, their value is only contingent on if someone wants them. Uh, so I don't think evolution provides a complete explanation. It does certainly explain uh, group formation. It's relevant in many other ways. But I actually said in my opening statement in the second part, you know, that evolution explains the sentiments of morality, but it doesn't explain how to synthesize them. So we have these feelings, we have these emotions, we have these drives, but how do we order them such that we end up with a rational system that is internally consistent and not subject to passing by the whim? of power. And that's all I have to say on that. OK. 
first of all, I think I should just point out that you mentioned two of possibly my favourite writers ever, which was Douglas Murray and Don Cupid. Um, but that's besides <laughs> the point. Um, so let's see, which point should I tackle first? I suppose I'll tackle the bit about evolutionary biology and morality and all that. I would agree with you. Yes, we are governed by instinct. However, and I do agree that self-fulfillment is a very strong instinct. However, it's not the only one. There's plenty of other, like the caring instinct, maternal instinct, particularly. These are other instincts which then drive us towards caring for people who are the weaker in society. And as for how do we then systematize these, what are little more than biological urges, how do we put this into a code of conduct? Well, I would say human civilization has been gradually honing our code of conduct for millennia. Starting with ancient laws, like the ones we mentioned in the Bible, the 600 and something laws, and we keep developing them. Every society has its own laws, which are continuously debated and repealed or added to as we develop our sense of what's right and wrong. So I suppose that's where the state comes in. So to answer your question, how do we systematize these things? I would say, well, that is where either religious laws or the state comes in. But these rules are not infallible and they must always be open for debate and challenge. What else to say? I might just add this is sort of taking the conversation off in another direction, but you were talking about how unless we have classical theism that there is, you know, the classical theist God gives meaning to why we have this sense of morality. There are other ways of looking at God. For example, you mentioned Don Cupid, who was of course a Church of England priest. But he argued that instead of God being some sort of supernatural being out there, God is simply the personification, like an anthropomorphized version of the values we wish to promote. So God isn't really a being at all. It's just a grand metaphor. And of course, that's just his personal opinion. But I suppose it just proves that even within Christendom, there is a vast disagreement on what God actually is. And finally, before I shut up, the point about God essentially not having to follow his own rules, well, surely that's what a despot does or like a political dictator makes the rules. It's one rule for thee, but not for me. We even see this now when politicians are making coronavirus rules and then breaking them and it's very annoying. So I would perhaps say that makes God a wee bit of a hypocrite. <laughs> and that is my point. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I guess the first thing that I, I'd want to talk about then is just, um, yeah, I mean, so human beings have this capacity for empathy, right? And we have this capacity for recognizing our own and for caring for others, right? But we also see that sometimes us human beings, we're very selective about when we show care, about when we show empathy. Uh, so, for instance, um, you could take the acts of, for instance, the Nazis. Right? So, uh, so, you know, like, um, you know, there'll be stories about how these Nazi generals and, you know, Auschwitz and these other camps, they would do incredibly cruel things without even flinching. And then when they'd go home, they'd hug their children and kiss them goodnight. And there's this eeriness to it, right, about how, yeah, this other human being has empathy, 
but they clearly believed right that this empathy was was selective you know so so i think the, the question that i have here then is what gives empathy so to speak its hotness its compellingness and and how do we delineate the scope of our empathy right so there's a question there about why i'm saying that i think that evolution gives us the sentiments so it explains why us as biological creatures right have the sentiments that we do uh, doesn't get at the bedrock of really um, wh why we ought to obey this empathy or even how we ought to apply this empathy in cases rather than other cases, so to speak. Uh, and then, you know, and then just to hit then on the point on God not following his own rules, right? So uh, the thing is, like, you know, so as a classical theist, I don't believe that God is a person. I don't believe that God is analogous to a human being. So we can we can approach God with our human concepts and ideas. But fundamentally speaking, you know, the foundation of all existence is not going to be like any created thing or else it would just be another part of the creation. And then also, I'm sure you, you reject kind of like a hierarchical view of ethics where if you have ontological perfections that another group doesn't have. So, for instance, human beings radically in their being have this capacity for rationality. Animals, they can they can reason to some extent, but the, the capacity to, for instance, comprehend um universals or the transcendent uh, transcendentals that seems to be lacking in animals um and then so on and so forth so then i would just say that i can offer a principal distinction for why god would not be bound by human law because i don't presuppose that god is a human being or a person analogous to us and i already have a hierarchical view on the ontological structure of ethics so that's just a lot of big word, words and i'm sure they're not satisfying right but aaron you tell me uh you know what, what you think about that Well, first of all, I agree that if the God of classical theism does exist, then he would be beyond this creation. However, I just I'm just not sure that the God of classical theism does exist, which means that I need to find some sort of ethical system that I can use regardless of my disbelief. On the point about humans being very selective and what instincts we follow, Yes, I agree with you. Humans are awful. We have the capacity to be really, really awful. Group instinct, like the Milgram experiment, the Stanford prison experiment, humans will do awful things if someone in authority tells them to do it. That is why bodies like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which of course was drafted after the World War II atrocities, are really important because it gives us something to fall back on. No, no matter what the dude in power says, we have these rights. Which I would say are derived from our better instincts. Um, see, I could go on with another example, but do either of the moderators want to add anything? Uh, I don't know if James has anything to add. I was going to ask for a clarification on one of Swan's points. By the way, I think he muted you, Swan, because uh, your your thing was going off really loud again. I don't know what it is, so we'll just ignore it. But um, so you, you all, both of you were talking about the um, God not having to follow his own rules, and then Swan appealed to classical theism and that God's not a person, he's an absolute being. Um, and I noticed that he, uh, I think it was in his opening or sometime, uses used the analogy of teleology a lot, right, of design 
designing value and virtue in people, if I'm representing that correctly. So I guess my clarification question, first one is, um, if, if morality is like within God's design of the universe, uh, I can imagine God designing a zebra without stripes, or I can imagine God making Earth have five moons instead of one. So uh, I guess the question is, is God's design arbitrary in that sense? And is there a possible world he could have made where humans don't have, where people don't have value or where murder was okay, et cetera? So the question is, is God's teleology of the universe arbitrary uh, when it comes to morality and moral values? Right. So, I mean, so the, the thrust of the argument uh, seems to be um, that, you know, if God, if I say that I'm appealing to teleology for morality, right, and I'm saying that this gives us the moral law, but then God can kind of do other things, uh, can do things that other beings aren't allowed to do, right, then that seems to just kind of make the teleology insignificant or disappear in a sense. Like, oh, it was significant here, but now it's not significant there. Um, I think my response would be, to point out that God, under the natural law view, uh, so um, religion is considered one of the basic goods in natural law theory. So usually there's seven basic goods, uh, and I can go into that list later. But the idea here is that if God exists, and God is the end-all, be-all of what we are made for, right? So God, so for instance, in natural law theory, life is the greatest basic good. So there's a hierarchy of the good. The reason why life is the greatest basic good and why you can't violate it um, unless you have some proportionate um, good that you're pursuing, but then that gets into double effect. But the reason why the life is the greatest basic good is because it's the most fundamental one, and that you cannot pursue the good unless you are first alive, right? And that's why we would even say, as a you know, for instance, on the debate on euthanasia, right? Like you're not better off if you're dead, because once you're dead, there is nothing good for you to even attain, right? Because you're you're taken out of existence. Right, so being is law. Excuse me. So then, if, if we take this hierarchical view of, uh, of the good, then if God is the greatest good, if God is the good itself, if God is the source of all perfection and goodness, then his dictates and his desires would be the greatest of all the goods that we could pursue. So then, in that sense, then, you know, even our life would be subordinate to God because God would be, in some sense, um, the one who grounds us and the one who gives us everything. To the point where it's it's not the case that I even, so to speak, own I own myself and I'm autonomous with respect to other human beings, right? Because other human beings, we share the same nature, we share the same moral properties, right? But no other human being is the greatest possible good, even beyond my own life, except for God. So that therefore you could intelligibly make a distinction without violating the theological structure of the world. Okay. So I so I guess this so as far as I understood it, so there's no possible way that God could not be the greatest end all be all. And so it just wouldn't be metaphysically possible for to have a different essence of good besides God. Yeah, and then also because um, for instance, like the convertibility principle says that being and goodness are convertible or interchangeable, then anything that exists insofar as exists or has the reality or fullness of existence is good. Right. It, 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 that, that's valuable there. So then if God creates a human being, it's not possible for him to create a human being without value, because the mere fact that that human being exists is in itself valuable. And it's the greatest mm -hmm. basic good, life itself. That, that's how precious one human life is. Gotcha. James, do you have anything to comment on before we carry on the conversation? Um, yeah, I, I just. Um... 
little bit blunt in how I <laughs> portray things, but I would say that that um, just in re response to this one is is fairly philosophical because you point to a creator and basically, essentially, you're saying if that creator who lives eternally and um, eternally is, and that's an essence of good is, and then creates human human beings, and that is good, then God is ultimately the essence of all goodness or the highest point of, of what goodness can be. Um, I think a, a problem I'm seeing in, in like the philosophy of ethics is to, I guess, in some ways, reiterate Aaron's position. It, it's not really grounded in in reality, and also the question that we're debating here today, which is the relationship between God and morality. And when you look at who God actually is and who God has revealed himself to be, we come back to that, the question of, of or the position of, of Aaron, which is fairly grounded, um, that biblically-based ethics are not sufficient and they must be detangled from the concept of morality, um, the concept of morale, morality and or from the Bible. It must be detangled from the Bible. Um, so I'd, I'd wonder, I mean, because God is in some sense seen to be immoral through, like, for example, the example that um, Aaron presented earlier. So if God is seen to be immoral in that sense, and there's clear examples of, of God's immorality, then how is a... a abstract or philosophical concept of God, which is somewhat removed from the um, evidence that we have from God, a plausible argument or sufficient Yeah, argument. I mean, so it depends on how, uh, uh, two things, right? I think it depends on how practical you want to make ethics then, because if you make ethics so practical that it basically becomes a branch of economics, then you're going to run into a ton of problems, right? So if you're going to be concerned about the long run of a human civilization, then you might actually seriously consider whether or not the disabled are worth depleting the resources of the of the gene pool, right? If you want to go that practical in ethics, then you can, uh, or but you shouldn't, right? Uh, I think the second thing too is to point out that um, my third point in my opening statement was that there is the inevitability of philosophy. So inevitably speaking, you're going to have to get into things like the intention foresight distinction. You're going to have to distinguish, okay, what counts as me causing someone to die as opposed to me, uh, me merely letting them die, right? So I think that what I would say is there's an underappreciation of the importance of philosophy in even the practical pursuit of things. And I think that when you become so practical that you take for granted your philosophical beliefs or underpinnings, then this ends up depriving you of really what you want, which is the force of reason itself. Because right? you want something that you can appeal to that is not even subject to the powers and principalities, so to speak, of human beings. So for instance, uh, Aaron mentioned the, uh, the, the, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. So what we did was we appealed to one human 
human institution to deal with another human institution. So we dealt, we, we said, we're going to give more power to this human institution to deal with this human institution. So then the, the fundamental principle then seems to be power. But then power doesn't always follow goodness, so to speak, right? So goodness, I mean, power could be found in an institution that is immoral and under the dictates of a dictator, right? Or something like that, so to speak. Um, so I think, you know, those are some things to keep in mind. And I guess, uh, let me see if there's any, excuse me. Let me see if there's anything else I want to say. Oh, one last thing, I guess. So I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of people have recognized that you know, going all the way back to like even Plato's dialogues. So, you know, you guys said I'm, I'm too abstract. Well, guess what? I'm going back to Plato. So I don't know if I'm helping my own cause, right? But, you know, there, there were tons of conversations in the Republic about why should you be virtuous? Why should you be a good person, right? And I used the example in the beginning of David Berlinski and, you know, that button that you can press and it could kill just a villager in China, but you get everything that you ever wanted, you know, like, but why not, you know, have pursue your rational self-interest or even, um, you know, the ring, the ring of Gaiji, you know, you put the ring on and you can escape all accountability and you can do basically whatever you want and no one ever is, is ever going to attack you, right? Some people would say, well, justice is just the will of the more powerful. And that was Thrasymachus's position. Um, someone might say that uh, what is good is simply, um, you know, whatever most benefits your rational self-interest, right? Or even uh, the harm principle, right? Whatever interferes with human and animal flourishing or um, I think Mill even adds in, uh, you know, consent to that, right? So if you harm an unconsenting third party. So then the question is then, what is harm? And then Philippa Foote, who's written a paper on this uh, titled Moral Beliefs, she talks about how the idea of harm presupposes teleology. And then she has to appeal to Aristotelian metaphysics to explain, right, what makes sense of the fact that there is such a thing as proper function. And it's not just a fiction. It's not just something that we stamp down with our foot or with power, but it's something that stands independent of us that's older and more ancient and fundamental than the state. So, uh, you know, that's one thing I'd point out. And then the last thing, I promise you. The early Christians, they, they, when they saw something good, when they saw something beautiful, you know, the early Christians, they understood that that was literally, in some sense, the divine being manifested in the material world. You know, so that's why you, you have like a sacramental view of nature where nature can actually manifest the grace of God. They didn't view the material world as just a bunch of stuff. They viewed it as something flowing with the divine reality. And that's why they could even say that that small deformed child that's been left behind by his parents in Rome on the side of the road to die, why even that beautiful child has value because they could see the elements of the divine in that child. So I think that depriving us of the divine is depriving us of too much. It's depriving us of more than we realize. And I think that once we look underneath our practicality and into the philosophical root, we'll see that the price we're paying is too much. All right. Thank you, Swan. Also, if you don't mind, mute your mic when you're not talking because you're still having that, that uh, rattling noise. Um, all right. So I appreciate that. So we've been picking on Swan a lot now, so I'll, I'll try to throw a question at Aaron. Uh, <laughs> she's ready for it. Um, so... Earlier, or I think in your opening statement, Aaron, you mentioned consequentialism and ultimately human flourishing. But I often hear theists, I've, I've used this argument too, say that ultimately consequentialism doesn't really matter because, you know, if, if everyone dies and you're really left with nihilism. Um, Bertrand Russell famously said that the foundations of reality are built, I'm sorry, reality is built on the foundation of despair. And I think Richard Dawkins paraphrasing basically said that 
The universe we observe is one with no design, no purpose, no meaning, and is bitterly indifferent. You know, so um, if the theist were to ask, well, why should why does it ultimately matter at all if we're all going to die and and human life human extinction is inevitable? What what difference does it make? So um, I guess we can bring up the question of of nihilism now to you. Certainly true. We're all going to die. May as well have a good time before we do. Um, and if you aren't completely self-centered, that good time should be extended not just to you, but to other people. And I would say that philosophy is important, but, well, you know my position, I think practicality is more important than philosophy. So if someone slaps me, I know it hurts and it's not good, regardless of the philosophy behind it. And Again, just to bring it back into the practical, I would like to throw out a certain example. So natural law. I am presuming that Swan is against homosexuality, but that is just a presumption. Um, but under natural law, homosexuality is seen as immoral. However, homosexuality is observed in many different animal species. So by that definition, it is natural. Um, it also even though it doesn't lead to reproduction, reproduction is not the be all and end all. It leads to other forms of human flourishing, like love, happiness, contentment. And it's also, it's a victimless crime. So again, going back to the harm principle, things like say rape are wrong because there is a clear victim. Someone is harmed. With homosexuality, which a lot of deists consider to be immoral, unless it's rape or some other standard which we hold to all sexual acts it it's completely victimless no one gets harmed and why would that be considered immoral under natural law okay so aaron's question was about natural law and for well first i'll swan i'll let you address her response to the nihilism question and then you can Get into natural law because I think what well, I think what Aaron's saying could apply to almost almost any sexual ethics that isn't rape, right? I'm assuming she would agree with that. Like anything from premarital sex, masturbation, etc., would not is a victimless crime in that sense. So um, I guess Swan can have a chance to respond to both of those points that Aaron brought up. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm I don't totally remember actually the first point about avoiding nihilism. So uh, I apologize for that, and also. Uh, because you know uh, homosexuality and sexual ethics is such a controversial area, that's what really got my attention. You know, to pay attention, right, uh, and to formulate my response carefully. So if I miss the first thing, I apologize. And Aaron, you know, I'd love to hear uh, maybe you re-articulate re it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, so when it comes to natural law theory's position on homosexuality, I think it's important to point out that natural law theorists aren't merely consequentialists, and I don't think consequentialism in and of itself is a stable system. And I even think the harm principle presupposes way too many things and that it needs to be curtailed and carefully fine-tuned. Um, and, you know, uh, I forgot who, but, you know, Robert George at Princeton University, one of his students actually argued that uh, Mill needs Aristotle in order to make sense of the harm principle because it's inherently teleological and presupposes an idea of harm. Uh, so I, I'm just going to say there that, yeah, I mean, we can be practical, right? But then how practical do you want to be? Do you want to turn uh, morality into... Uh, just a subset of economics, and then people will become units of uh, material value. Uh, you know, that's just, just one thing to keep in mind, so then you need philosophy to come in, and that's why I said philosophy is inevitable. 
so then just because something is quote unquote natural, right, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be moral under natural law theory, because natural law theory is presupposing that the natural world is teleologically and rationally structured. So then, you know, when we examine an act like homosexuality, uh, the natural law theorist would say something like, well, what are the sexual organs intrinsically ordered towards? What makes sense of their function and what makes it intelligible? So if I'm going to use a faculty, then I better use it towards its, its end, its proper end, and what makes sense of it. Because if I decide, well, I can uh, use action, I can perform an action that denies my faculty's teleological construction, and in some sense, I am denying my humanity in performing the action itself. I'm denying the very rational structure of nature. And that in itself ends up collapsing the entire system of natural law and morality. So then there's a deeper question here about, um, you know, if natural law theory is actually true. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to the issue, for instance, homosexuality in particular, you know, I'll just, I'll put in an anecdote, right? So, I mean, so natural law theory is going to say that, you know, such persons are pursuing the good of friendship and they are having valid emotions about wanting to be loved and to be received and to experience this physical good. But what the faculty is ordered towards is what well, the faculty is ordered towards, properly ordered towards, including um, the elements of our emotions and our heart, is a comprehensive union of both the body and the intellect or the soul or the human person. Right. So then I would say that you know, um, even the Catholic Church, to bring them in, right? Even or just natural law teaching in general, uh, natural law would say that there there's two things that are distinct about the sex act, right? One is that it's ordered towards procreation, but it's also ordered towards unity, right? And that unity is ordered towards the love of human life, because oftentimes, you know, human. I've seen people who like you know um, believe in sex without having to go through a pro procreation or aim towards procreation. They'll say that kids are just burdens or kids get in the way of romantic love, right? And that ends up subjugating a child to just a burden and something that stands in the way of human pleasure, right? So I think there's some dangers there. But anyway, um, just to close with this anecdote, you know, like I remember one time uh, I prayed, you know, God, if I'm going to believe that this is what the natural law says, that this is what the church teaches or what you have taught in scripture, um, then God make me celibate. You know, if I'm going to make this rule for everybody else, then I got to follow it, too. Right? I got to um, I, I want to engage and have solidarity with these individuals, even though I'm, um, I'm heterosexual. And that's why I'm planning on becoming a Dominican priest, because I want to give my life to the community and I want to live out the principles that I espouse. So I want to show other people that celibacy is possible and God really is the greatest good. And yeah, I'm missing out on marriage, but I'm missing out on the, the you know the goodness of the sex act or whatever. But uh, uh, got too specific there. But um, I think that God can complete us and make us happy. So I'm living out my philosophy and giving it that practical. Okay, thank you, um, James. Do you have anything to say for what either of them have commented so far? You're on mute, James. You just muted yourself. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, no, I don't have any. Oh, I've actually got about a hundred questions. <laughs> but I think I think I'd say um, 
it's been a really fruitful conversation and, and um yeah it, I mean, it's definitely certainly caused me to think um one actually I, I, I would ask you both one question um actually Erin actually had, had a question for you in, in this respect the Swan touched on something um, regarding the aversion of pain, um, or you could say the aversion of, of um, suffering, um, and, and he, he spoke of that as something being negative. Um, and I would say that there's a good virtue within Christianity that there's this embrace of suffering for the greater good. Um, and Christians would say that this is something that Christ embodied and demonstrated. And you said you, you try to live a life, um, a Christian life, as, as best as you can um, in, some, in some sense. Um, would you say that, that this is indeed a Christian virtue, this embrace of suffering, for, for example, if the world split in two and we were at war and there was a good side and a bad side and you were on a good side and you decided to go to war for the sake, the sake of your people, would you say that this is a Christian virtue? Um, or would you say that this is something that can be grounded in a, a practical or consequential ethic? So let me see if I'm understanding the question, James. Um, so yep. the question is um, the particular virtue that you highlighted, which is self-sacrifice for the greater good. Is that a Christian virtue? Or Yeah, that's right. And, and I'm, I'm asking Erin, is, is that a Christian? Would she see that as being oh, a virtue? Whoop. Or would she see that as being something that can be grounded in, say, a secular ethic or a practical ethic? Or something that's embodied in consequentialism. It is one of the things I like about Christianity, although I do think it can still be applied from a secular lens. So, say if, if we combine the harm principle with utilitarianism, which is you know the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people, well, sometimes the greatest amount of happiness comes from one person subjecting themselves to harm so that a greater number do not face harm. And that's when we get yeah. soldiers sacrificing themselves in war. Um, I would also add that principle can be taken too far. So, for example, a lot of the early church fathers were almost obsessed with becoming martyrs so they could be like Jesus. And like they deliberately tried <laughs> to get themselves executed. And it was quite weird. But yes, everything in moderation. <laughs> OK. Yeah, like that's, that's a good point, Aaron. That was a good uh, question, James. So um, we have about. 15, 20 minutes left or so, depending on how I'm trying to aim for an hour and a half, roughly. Um, I guess another question, going back to the um, sexual ethics briefly for Swan, is that um, a lot of a lot of atheists, some of them are moral realists, but a lot of them will just deny that moral, uh, objective moral values exist. And typically the argument I hear in favor of objective morality is it's just intuitively obvious, right? No one lives their life as if they don't really pursue some kind of good. But when it comes to sexual ethics, I guess the question is, if, intui if intuition and reason is how we're basing our, our, um, our morality, 
if it seems intuitively ob- obvious to a lot of us that homosexuality doesn't seem obviously wrong, should that mean that intuition is not necessarily the best way to assess moral uh, moral bases? If you understand what <clears throat> I'm asking. Yeah. Okay. So that that's good. Um, yeah. So I think uh, people who have particularly advocated the position that like intuition is in itself like an evidence for uh, moral realism or people like uh, Bruce Schaefer of Doe and others. So, uh, and their argument is that, you know, if this intuition that we have about just that morality is real, right? That there really is something wrong with harming other people, or there really is something wrong about betraying the trust of a friend and leaving them, you know, incredibly worse off, let's say, so to use like an unambiguous example. Uh, then the idea is that if we have to deny our intuition on this, then why not just collapse? all of our intuitions, right? Because our intuitions are so fundamentally integrated to how we understand reality, to how we reason, that if we can't trust our intuitions here, then how can we trust them anywhere else, you know? Uh, it's kind of like a litmus test, so to speak. Uh, and I think that's a valid way of beginning with the project of moral realism. Now, uh, from this, you have people like John Rawls who have advocated for a thing called uh, reflective equilibrium, which I think is the dominant way in which ethics is done today. So what you do with reflective equilibrium is you begin with a moral intuition, you turn it into a principle, you test it in different cases, and then you see if it leads to the outcome harmonious with your intuition. And I think that there's a lot of value uh, in using this Rawlsian method of uh, reflective equilibrium. And I know natural law theorists like Brian B's song, they're not going to say, oh, like, yeah, throw out your intuition, because that's crazy. <laughs> but what they will say, right, is that intuitions, they, intuitions, they're kind of like our primordial grasp of truth. So we're going to kind of be sensitive to the truth and we'll kind of latch on to certain things. But these intuitions themselves need to be properly ordered and systematized such that intuitions aren't just willy-nilly being used to justify any position. So, for instance, I think that with the um, debate on, uh, the, you know, on homosexuality, yeah, like I, I think intuitions are strong in this area. But I also think that you know, if, if people like Philip Afoot and other neo-Aristotelians follow the logical structure or the rational structure of act on an Aristotelian perspective, then they're going to have to either say, I'm going to keep my intuition or the system. But then they said that, oh, we're using the system to make sense of our intuition. So you have to make the decision, right? And I don't think it's practical to philosophically divorce yourself from what makes the project of morality make sense. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. Could I jump in with something? Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, the current Pope, Pope Francis, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, but he's actually <laughs> made some rather controversial decisions that drift away from natural law into consequentialism. For example, in 2016, when the Zika virus was ravaging South America and it was affecting primarily preborn children, he came out and said for the first time in Catholic history, okay, fine, you can use contraception, even though it's against natural law, because it's for the greater good. It's so your kids don't get Zika. So I suppose my point is, even the Pope is now slightly drifting into <laughs> consequentialism. <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah, point, Yeah, I mean, Aaron. you know, I love Pope. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, uh, I love Pope Francis. You know, he's my holy father, so I have to respect him. But uh, yeah, I mean, there he wasn't speaking ex cathedra. And obviously, he's found tension with other people uh, or canon law lawyers who have pointed out that he is still bound by tradition. 
especially what the church has taught. So, I mean, if, if that's just a one-off, then let it be a one-off, you know. But then Pope Francis is very good in terms of being pro-life. And, you know, Pope Francis uh, talked about civil unions being a permissible uh, form of action. And what's interesting is that he said that um, when he when he gave that declaration, he was not thinking just in uh, just only about, you know, same-sex couples, but he's also thinking about, you know, if a brother and a sister live together or, or a brother and a brother, a sister and a sister, right? Then they also should have access to a civil union. And actually, I'm, I'm in agreement with uh, Pope Francis that, you know, uh, LGBT couples should be allowed to participate in, in society and especially if they share property and stuff. I don't, I don't see that as, um, you know, being, you know, like disqualifying them for participating in the common good, you know. But then what we say about marriage and sexuality, that's an important area. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, in my position, I try to be as compassionate as possible to same-sex couples and to people from the LGBT community. And I don't think we need to pass laws to just, you know, add more to their suffering. Okay. Yeah, thank no, I was gonna I was gonna bring it to you, Swamp, but I was gonna say as a Protestant, I don't have the liability of having to care or defend everything the Pope does. So I, I'm sure you would have had more depending on her point. But that that's a good point. So I guess Aaron, I'll ask you a question now. Um so a big part of well not a big part, but a major part of it is, you know, uh, evolutionary development um, in your system of morality. So uh, my question is, when we talk about natural selection, right, when you ask what is selection selecting, it's selecting reproductive viability, right? Who can pass their genes on the most? Um, and it doesn't seem obvious to me that 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 necessarily equates to well-being, for example, or at least quality of life, because we could look at bacteria and fruit flies, which can reproduce extremely fast and therefore very highly selected for, but they only live for a couple hours or if you're a fly, maybe 30 days. Um, in fact, when you look at countries, typically the countries that are poor and really worse off actually have very high population growth rates and they and the West actually has a very low population growth rate. So I guess my question is, Aaron, if, if evolution is a major basis for morality and evolution is centered at reproduction, should we not follow the countries that are worse off to try to increase our population growth rate? And does that mean that well-being is not equated to um, reproductive fitness in that sense? So I think I was applying the evolutionary model specifically to morality, not necessarily that everything evolution does is therefore good. You know. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Nature is pretty horrendous. Um, I would also say the fact that viruses and bacteria and all that can multiply like anything, surely that's an argument against a good God. Why would he do that? But that's derailing the conversation. Um, and another thing that makes us human, that separates us from animals, is that we have the intellect. We have managed to overcome our biology. So... Yes, when we were in our primitive form, there was literally nothing to life except eat, sleep, reproduce. But now that we have developed, we have overcame that. And there's much more to life than just reproducing. Swan, do you have any comment or response to that or just any other topic you want to bring up? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I appreciate Aaron making that comment about, um, you know, human beings and what makes us unique. And I think that, um, you know, if you follow that to its metaphysical roots and where that's all leading us, I think that that really does point to the existence of God. Now, there is a question about uh, the concerns dealing with 
um, you know, uh, uh, natural evil and nature being red in tooth and claw. So that's, you know, that's a conversation for another time. But yeah, I mean, I just think that oftentimes in our conversations on morality, we presuppose so much. And I think that if we stop and actually think about the structure of what we're proposing, I think it inevitably leads to the existence of God, or at least it appeals to principles of reality that ultimately point to the existence of God, right? And uh, I mean, I'll just leave it at that. I think that, yeah, I mean, even like if you if you want to be practical with ethics, you, then you, you still need to incorporate certain philosophical and quote-unquote abstract principles. And then once you examine that and go deeper and deeper and deeper, I think you'll see, uh, you know, God's face at the bottom of the barrel. Okay, thank you. So I'll give James a chance to ask one or two more questions, and then I think we'll move on to closing statements or in whatever you want to make of a closing statement, just summary of your arguments or whatever. So, um, yeah, look, I'm I'm happy to go to closing arguments, Caleb, if if you are. Yeah, if if as long as they are. Um, do either of you prefer to go first? I know I don't know if Erin wants to go last because she so she gets the last word and because she went second last time, or if she wants to go first this time because she went second. However, y'all want to do it. Whoever wants to get the last word, there's a preference. No. I'm happy okay. to go. Go first. Okay. Well, if you want to go ahead, Aaron, you can go. You can more than welcome to go. These aren't timed, by the way, but just you know, I would say maybe five minutes or so. But just I don't. I'm not worried about you all go over time, so I think you'll be okay. Oh, my final points can be quite brief. Not even five minutes. The crux of the issue is. Are we going to base our ethics on something that might be true and that not everyone believes in, like religion? Or are we going to instead base it on something which is universal, like flourishing happiness, avoiding harm, which anyone can pursue, regardless of their underpinning philosophy? I would say in our globalised, multicultural, multi-faith world, the latter is simply the most practical and most common sense way to do things. I am not denying the existence of God. Like I said, I'm an agnostic. Everything Swan said could well be true. But it's simply a fact that it just doesn't apply to everyone and our morality needs to move beyond religion in order to stay relevant. And that's all I have to say. All right, Swan. Yeah, so in my opening remarks, I kind of presented Four different points. The first one is that I mentioned the importance of natural law and natural rights and how people throughout history, when they were in the minority or not in institutions of power, they appealed to some deeper law that would one day vindicate them, that could stand against the state, stand against the forces of power. And that's why I think that um, it's important that we really understand what the moral law is. And we understand that reason itself also compel us. And that reason itself stands as a kind of, as Thomas Nagel put it, you know, a universal judge, a universal third perspective. So I think that if we're going to base our morality on something universal, we could base it on things like evolution or maybe our, uh, you know, our sentiments. But we've also seen that those sentiments can vary and that they need to be principled on the basis of reason itself. And so I think that what's more universal than reason itself, it's something that we all do. It's something that binds and compels us. And it's something that even orders our desires and our passions and our intuitions and our, you know, our empathy. So then I also want to point out then that I, I mentioned two examples about rational self-interest and the question of human equality. 
And you know, the question is, if we make re morality so practical, um, then there's this worry that, well, we could just boil it down to a field of economics. And then I've already gone into the ramifications of that. And then also when it comes to the question of human equality, we inevitably have to get into the philosophy of what is morally relevant and significant about the human subject. And we could appeal by saying like, you know, we're advanced species now, we gotta, we gotta be smarter than this and get over our prejudices. But I mean, the question is you ask why, or where do you get this botanist from? So that reason itself has to still be invoked in this court of, uh, in this court part of morality. Talked about the inevitability of philosophy. So yeah, this seems abstract, but this is part of the game, so to speak. So we just gotta deal with it, right? Um, and then finally, I discussed how morality seems to be based upon principles that presuppose or at least entail the existence of God. So I mentioned these five principles. I don't think I'll go over them again, but, but I just want to saying that if what I say is correct, then the question of morality cannot escape the question of the existence of God. And as various other thinkers have pointed out, whether or not they're Christian or not, or if they're Christian atheists or Christian agnostics, like you know Don Keep and Douglas Murray, I particularly love Murray a lot. Um, they'll all point out that something has been lost with the loss of the transcendence. Something has been taken away from us and that we now have to invent stories and ideas and use institutions of power to, to legislate our morality. But there's gotta be something deeper than that. There's gotta be something that is in reason itself that we can see and observe and appeal to. And I think ultimately speaking, once we do this, we arrive at the fact that the existence of God can be known and that this God is good and loves us and wants us and is the beautiful, is the good, is the truth itself. That's what completes human life. So we don't want to deprive ourselves of that great good. All right. Well, thank both of our speakers for joining on us, uh, joining on the show today. Thank you, my co-host James, for helping us moderate this debate. Um, in our discussion of morality, I think regardless of where you stand, the audience watching this, we can all agree that it is objectively good for you all to dis to subscribe to this channel and hit that like <laughs> button. We'll be, I'll be the stereotypical YouTuber here. Um, do you, either of you want to give a shout out to your all's channels or writings or anything like that? I don't know what you all have. Podcasts, anything that you want to plug in that we can put in the description? Uh, well, my website is erinburnettauthor.co.uk, and we can put it in the, the description so you know how to spell it. Yeah. I'm currently writing a book on autism in the church, which will hopefully be oh. out in the next few months. So that's what I have to plug. That's really interesting. Awesome. Go on, anything cool. from you? Yeah, so I have a podcast, Facebook, and YouTube channel. Uh, well, where to go? Oh, it was, I didn't know you were going to share your screen. It got caught me off guard. Oh, I didn't. I didn't mean to share my screen. Whoops, oh. sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm sure David. Hey, we're Russell behind the scenes. <laughs> Here we are. Oh, oh, cool. Okay, yeah. Nice. Well, is it okay if I keep on talking? Yes, keep on talking. I don't know what David's doing, but just keep on talking. You're good. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, so you know, I have a Facebook page, YouTube channel, podcast called Intellectual Conservatism. I do these topics and others on my page. Uh, and then right now I'm trying to get a paper published on the papacy and its biblical Jewish historical roots. So that's very exciting. And aside from that, I'm very happy uh, that I got to talk to Aaron. And Aaron, you know, like I, I want to see your rabbit one day, you know, that, that beautiful little creature. So, yeah. Only if she gets to see your cat. All right. And James, sure, yeah. I believe you have a YouTube channel to plug in as well, right? 
Oh yeah, not today, but yeah, well, I guess so. It's um, honest atheist. I haven't haven't posted in some time, um, but I do have some some fresh content coming up. And in terms of plugging, I just wanted to say if, if you're watching this today, and I'm sure you have your own opinions of morality and perspectives, and we would really love to hear from you, and hear what you have to say, and maybe you could say which opinion you you agree with the most, whether it was swans or errands um, from this debate. Yeah, absolutely. So I also want to uh, give a shout out for uh, next, I don't know if it's next week, but next uh, episode we'll be having Fuzz Rana on from Reasons to Believe uh, to discuss a lot of things about evolution, the existence of God, etc. And uh, yeah, so we thank everyone for coming here to speak today. Thank our, our my other co-hosts and for our audience watching. You all have a great night and uh, hopefully you get to make up the decisions for yourself. So. Thanks, everybody watching. I'm going to hope he closes.